Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Organ and Tissue Donation in partnership with Donate Life. I'm your host Michael Billings and my guest today is Tara Duke. Tara's daughter Maya had troubles from birth. Born with a rare condition, if she was going to have anything resembling a normal life, she was going to need a liver transplant. Before I get to that, I want to remind you that I do this podcast in the hope that after listening, you'll do two things. Sign up to become an organ donor at donatelife.gov.au and talk to your family about your desire to be an organ donor. Both things are as important as each other and just one organ or tissue donor can transform the lives of many people. I'll remind you at the end of the episode, but for now, here's Tara Duke. Tara, where does the story start for you? Um, So our daughter, Maya, was born in April 2018. Um, she has an older sister, Luna, who at the time was four. Um, we had her in the Geelong Hospital. Um, and for the first 36 hours, it was all blissful newborn baby. Her second day of life, she was quite lethargic. Um, and I just thought as a second time mum, great, I can have a little bit of a relax in the hospital, but I'll be up all night. And then when my husband and mum and mother-in-law and Luna all left for the day, she sort of started to, I guess, go downhill. We noticed she wasn't feeding well. She was really lethargic. And we had a, an amazing midwife kind of saying, do you mind if I get a paediatrician to come and look, look at her? So after a few, a few tests, um, some assessments, they said, look, we'd feel a bit better if she went to the special care nursery. At that point, I wasn't, everyone seemed relatively relaxed. So I wasn't too worried about it. I gave my partner a call, told him I was going to special care, but, hey, stay home with Luna, it's it's all okay. And on her way down to special care, she had a bilious vomit, which is bright green and it indicates potentially something obstructing the bowel. And the team said, look, we, want, we think she needs a contrast study. We're worried there might be a blockage. Um, we'd feel a lot better if this was done at the Royal Children's Hospital because... If they find something something bad, she'll be in the best hands there. So shock to the system for me, phone call to, to Richard, get your bum in here and we need to, <laughs> need to um, send her off. So at that point I, I had quite high blood pressure and had had a caesarean so I wasn't allowed to go to Melbourne um, but Richard quickly jumped in the car and followed the Piper, Piper Ambulance up the road to the Royal Children's Hospital. Um, once they were there, they did the contrast study. It didn't give them definitive answers. They, Richard signed, signed a lot of waivers about doing some exploratory surgery just to see if there was some type of blockage. Later, not that day, he told me once I was up in Melbourne that they spoke to him about what could potentially be found. She could have a dead bowel, all these different worst-case scenarios. But it was crossed out that it wasn't anything structural. So at the time we celebrated, I was there by then up in Melbourne. Great, it's nothing, you know, it's no surgery, that's fine. And then somebody from the metabolic team tapped us on the shoulder and said, oh, we'd like to talk to you. Maya has a metabolic condition known as propionic acidemia. And that's way worse <laughs> than having a small surgery. So then became our journey of learning about metabolics, learning about a stream of medicine that I'd never heard of. So propionic acidemia is an inborn error of metabolism. So Richard and I both carry uh, a recessive gene for this condition. And any child we had would have a one in four chance of inheriting the condition. 
Um, but it's it's really rare. So I think the Children's Hospital told us they get one child with this condition every two to three years, and and that was Maya. So uh, her body doesn't her body's missing an enzyme that breaks down protein, which you need obviously to grow and develop. So her treatment was involving giving her enough protein to grow and develop, but not too much that her body would go into a metabolic crisis, which can cause a buildup of ammonia in your blood, which, you know, you clean your floor with ammonia. It's not a good thing to have in your body at high levels. If she did get into go to a metabolic crisis, which on presenting to the hospital she was at that state, it can cause issues to your heart. It can brain damage, things like that. So, um yeah, the, the treatment at the time was she had a nasal gastric tube. She at, the, at that time, she was on all her nutrients were through her bloodstream. But slowly, as they understood her condition, I guess, a bit more, she was um, had an NG tube for all her feeds. And we were giving her medication to help her body either absorb or flush out protein. So look, the first week was eye-opening. You know, we had an, a newborn baby that, you know, we had absolutely no idea that a NICU even existed. So the butterfly ward at the children's hospitals is amazing. But until you're there, we've had we had a few nurses that go, you shouldn't even know that we're here because your baby should be at home with you. But the nurses and the doctors there were just amazing. But Maya's condition was quite volatile. We'd have a few days where things would start to go well um, and then she would start vomiting and once she was vomiting, she would lose fluid, lose calories, lose protein. And then periods of fasting, your body uses its protein stores in its body, which wasn't wasn't good for Maya. So yeah, so that was that was where we we were. Um, we Richard and I re- ended up relocating to the Royal Children's Hospital. We were living in Ronald McDonald House. We our older daughter was at Kinder at the time, so she. Luckily, both my mother and Richard's mother are retired and live in Geelong. So they were able to, I guess, give Luna some stability in still continuing kinder and then coming up on the weekend up to the hospital to be with us while we were learning, I guess, how to care for Maya and how to get to know her needs, get ourselves prepared for when we'd be able to go home, um, which kept stretching and stretching and stretching out. I guess that leads me to what I was going to ask. What were the conversations that were happening at that time in regards to the next step? Like, are they preparing you to take Maya home with a condition and teaching you how to manage it? What are the conversations around what your life will look like once you leave the Royal Children's? Well, it's interesting you say that. We had some, when Maya was obviously quite well, we got to the stage where When you've been in the children's hospital with a newborn for an extended period of time, uh, they have a different wing that's called care by parents. So it's basically within the hospital, but you're in your own, you know, small hospital-y hotel room where you care for your child, but you've got the ward on call and you go up to the ward several times a day just to check in. So we, we got to the point where we were at Care by Parent and this was late May, so we'd been in hospital about six to seven weeks and we thought, okay, we can do this. We were feeding Maya every two hours at that point and that's 24-7, so we were waking up to do the feeds. I was expressing, 
Richard and I were running on running on empty, learning how to do this. And then Maya vomited while we were in care by parent. We did all the the things we thought we were doing, but once she started vomiting again, her ammonia level rose and we were not able to go home. They discussed options like children can be discharged if she can't tolerate food, she can be discharged on nutrition. TPN, so nutrition straight into your bloodstream, I guess, rather than by IVs, rather than uh, through your stomach. Um, but that is a possibility. Um, hospital in the home, things like those sort of services, which were all just so, I guess, so foreign to us, but we were willing to do anything, I guess, to get out of hospital. We just weren't seeming, I guess, at that point to control her condition so it was stable enough that the hospital felt safe with us going home. Um, during that time, a discussion was raised around a liver transplant. Our metabolic doctors had said that they had seen other hospitals treat patients with propionic acidemia with a transplant. Um, your liver breaks down most of the protein that your body consumes, I guess, and that if Maya did have a liver without the missing enzyme, it would definitely make her body more stable um, she wouldn't go into a metabolic crisis it wouldn't be this I guess this tightrope that we were walking that we would get everything right for a certain amount of time and then maybe a slight virus or um, illness that Maya might have picked up and particularly if you're in hospital for an extended period of time it's inevitable that something will happen a hospital's full of sick people so <laughs> You know, those sort of things go around. But for her, that her body just didn't, you know, I guess cope with having a virus or a, a cold or a cough like, like a normal immune system would. So the discussion was around a liver transplant. We had um, one of the transplant liaisons come and come and speak to us while we were in hospital for our, our within the first three months and just say look we know this is scary it's a very big decision but you know here's some information and here, here are my details I'm happy to chat to you whenever and look Alex at the time was amazing like for the sort of job that she does and you know she sees parents she's at the children's hospital so she sees parents in really, really tough times, but she was just so level-headed, so easy to talk to, was happy to crack Richard and I, you know, deal with things by cracking corny jokes and trying to make light of the situation, I guess, uh, when things get a bit heavy. So having someone like her that was happy to chat with us and have a bit of a laugh and but talk about some, you know, really intense stuff was was really helpful. So at that point, the idea was there. We At that point, we did get discharged home. We spent two days in the Geelong Hospital just connecting with, I guess, the services at the Geelong Hospital, putting in a bit of plan in place of if my was to be unwell, at least we'd have some, some information in their system when we had an alert card for the emergency room so that um, they would know to call the metabolic team at the Children's Hospital just to, I guess, get information about Maya's condition and how to treat it and what to look for. We had two nights back at home in Geelong and then Maya was unwell and went back to hospital and we were back in the children's for another two weeks post that. <laughs> um, and that's when we, we had a, a proper in-depth conversation about organ transplants. Now, most of the people I talk to on this podcast, the situation is pretty black and white. You need an organ transplant 
or you will not live. Now, I don't want to downplay the severity of the situation at all, but Maya could live with this condition. It wasn't going to kill her. Does that make the situation easier or harder? How does that conversation go between you and your husband, Richard? Look, harder, I think. I guess for us, like we, at that point, we did a bit of research, you know, there's not, we were told that the Royal Children's Hospital hadn't done a, a liver transplant for a child with propionic acidemia, but some other hospitals in Australia had. And in the US, it's been basically if your child has this particular condition, a liver transplant is the way to go. So you're actually sort of counselled through that diagnosis, I guess, as, as a newborn, um, that that is a way to bring a really great quality of life to the child. So look, one of the, we were sort of, you know, trying to get our head around it. And one of the doctors said to us, which really hit home was, you're making a decision either way. You're either taking your child home with propionic acidemia, which is really volatile, which you potentially could be one bout of gastro away from a metabolic crisis, which could give her permanent brain damage, or you could have an, have an organ transplant. But obviously then you're taking home being on immune suppressants for life. So, look, the thing that kept ringing to us was with a new liver, she would gain that quality of life. Um, She would be able to obviously metabolise her nutrients for the most part properly and that that would take her away from this, I guess, the risk of having this metabolic crisis and something catastrophic happening down the road for her. And maybe it wouldn't have happened until she was older, but we wanted to just give her the best, I guess, the best possible chance of, thriving and living her fullest life and from from our side all of it pointed in the direction of of an organ transplant. Now the conversation started when she was two months old but she wasn't officially put on the transplant list until her first birthday. No so we had a lot of work up with her. I guess being having the underlying metabolic condition meant that there were a lot of boxes that needed to be ticked by a lot of different specialists um, which thankfully all ticked well and then I guess a plan in place was there for, for for Maya and I guess a little blueprint of what to do when the call happened. So we were officially listed on Maya's first birthday, um, which was a really great gift from from the, the transplant team that we, we got to tick that off. So she's put on the list in April, but it's not until the end of the year that you get the call. Tell me about that year. No, so... I look, funnily enough, I don't think I ever asked how long we'd wait. But looking back now, I, I feel like it's crazy that I didn't ever go, how long are we going to wait for this liver? I think just we just kept just going along with what we were doing. And I guess it was something that we thought was going to happen at some point, but we had no expectation. We got the call in December. And I guess my Richard and I were just, oh, oh, wow, it's it's the call. So we packed everything up and we got ourselves down to the children's hospital as quick as we could. And once we were there, we were expecting, you know, you see it in you see it in the movies. Someone's running down the hallway with an esky and it's clear the decks and transplants happening. But it was a lot more mellow and calm than than that. We presented ourselves up to the ward. We saw nurses that we'd seen, you know, Maya had been in and out of hospital you know, for the previous year and year and a half. So we knew all the nurses on the ward quite well. So we presented up there and we're like, today's the day. And 
you know, got her prepped. She did bloods. We gave her a bath and, and all those kind of things. Um, and then towards the, the end of the day, we got told, hey, it's not going to happen today. There's been a slight, a slight compl- complication, but we will give you a call in the morning and let you know if we're going to go ahead. So Richard and I, you know, we're, we were on the board with Maya and um, early that morning we got the call that it, it wasn't happening. So the organ had been taken to the Austin Hospital. They had assessed it and it just was too large for Maya. So although livers can be cut down for transplant, um, it just wasn't going to be cut down small enough for her size. So we, um, funnily enough, were booked for some minor surgery for Maya that week anyway. So we stayed and we had that surgery and we drove back to Geelong and sat by the phone waiting once again. It must have been disappointing beyond words to go from the high of getting that call versus the sorry, it's not going to happen today. How was the drive back to Geelong? Yeah, look, it was it was pretty sombre. We, I guess we'd, you know, it was, it was mid-December, so we were like getting ready to have Christmas in the hospital. <laughs> but we went, wow, in the new year is going to start Maya's new life. Like this will be amazing. So I guess we'd sort of built ourselves up for, you know, the what if, like, wow, this is going to improve her life. Wow, it's so early in her journey she won't even remember this. So, yeah, it was definitely a, a sombre drive home. But one of our nurses had said, look, I can't promise you for Christmas, but I think in the next couple of months you'll be getting the proper call. And we did. <laughs> we did. Yeah, but then you do get the proper call. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I guess we were, okay, you have a couple of dry runs maybe. So we weren't quite as on edge, obviously just as efficient as getting to the hospital. Um, but this time it just it felt more real. We were prepped, prepped for surgery and she went into surgery. It was Saturday night. That morning I was ready to take my daughter Luna to a friend's birthday party and we got the call just before we left. So grandma was called in to take her to that and Richard and I drove up to Melbourne. Look, we got told that it was post um she, she got booked into the surgery and everything looked smooth. We had one of the nurse liaisons give us updates throughout. So they sort of um, prepped us that it was going to be, you know, a very long operation um, and that they contact us probably each hour or so just to give us an update on how everything was tracking. And we got called earlier than they thought that it had all gone really smoothly and, hey, do you want to come up and meet the surgeon? Because you can come and see Maya. So um, we went up. To, we went up to the ward uh, to ICU and spoke spoke to the sur- to the surgeon. And look, he told us that Maya's donor it was a paediatric liver. It was the perfect size for Maya, and due to it being the perfect size, it had alleviated a lot of complications from his side. But that everything had gone really smoothly. He was really happy with how everything went. We were then prepped that, you know, you you can go and see your daughter. Every single, you know, every arm, every leg is going to have a line coming out of it. She's going to be on multiple machines with different infusions. So we'd kind of already, I guess, been prepped that that's what we were going to walk in and see. And to be honest, I think I'd built it up in my mind that it was going to be a lot worse than what it was when we walked in. But 
look, she looked, you know, she looked good, like from from what I saw and um, hearing that, you know, a surgeon that does that type of thing telling us that was really straightforward was just such a sigh of relief. Yeah, and then, you know, we just had to wait and see see how she how she went in her recovery. How long was her recovery? Like, when did you get to take her home? I'm guessing you wanted to that very day. Yeah, so we um, we got we got told that it would be an extensive stay and we said, oh, what do you mean by extensive? Because, you know, when she was born, she'd been in the hospital for three months, so we were kind of prepped for that. And they said, oh, at least a couple of weeks. We were like, oh, we can do a couple of weeks. We spent two weeks in ICU and then we moved to the ward Um Within the second, within the first week on the ward, she did have an acute rejection, but it was caught really early, and it is it is quite common. So she was given some IV steroid therapy, and and all was good. Um, so all in all, we were in the hospital I think for four weeks, and then the trip home. So look, the poor thing, she's what she's just turned three. So at the point, she was nearly nearly two. We were in hospital and she was so bloated and retained fluid. She um, pre-surgery was nine kilos. She was up to nearly 13 post-surgery um, with just how much fluid she was retaining. She was on steroids, so she was quite, you know, she had this sort of stereotype moon face. She just looked so bloated and uncomfortable. And after a while she was just so sick of people coming in and prodding her that, as soon as a nurse came to the door, she'd burst into tears. And um, Richard and I were like, oh, my God, what have we done? You know, um, she's miserable and this is all awful. But we got to go home. We drove home. Once we we got into into our house and we sat Maya just, you know, on her, her play mat in our lounge room and she smiled, like looked back and smiled at us and Maya had never really been been a very animated or like giggly, smiley kind of kind of child, and it was I guess the kind of the happiest I'd ever seen her. She just seemed I don't know made. And the next day, my mum and my mother in law had came over and seen her and just said she just looks so bright. And they just you know you just couldn't explain it. And so they, I just I guess it was just she just felt really good. Prior to her transplant, she would vomit nearly every day. Um, we'd always be catching vomit and weighing it and, you know, replacing fluids through through her peg. And she just, yeah, just seemed like happy. And post-transplant, she really hasn't vomited. <laughs> she, yeah, and just that moment coming home, I think. I've, I haven't said it in a very succinct way, but she just was happy and she was just smiling and giggling at us and just seemed so well, which, you know, I, I guess kids are just so resilient and her having such an extreme surgery, she just bounced back, um, which is something that we hadn't seen seen her do. Um, so, yeah, look, I guess, I guess for us initially when she came home, she was on a lot of medication initially. We had to keep her, you know, in a in an absolute bubble. We were absolutely paranoid about her her getting sick or getting bugs. Um, and timing for us was quite uncanny because then the world changed and everyone went into lockdown. Which I guess for us, the first the first winter post transplant, we were sort of warned that 
you know, you needed to be really careful that Maya's obviously highly immune suppressed, that we needed to protect her. Um, Luna didn't go to school. <laughs> she was at home. So Maya's recovery, we alleviated, I guess, Richard and Luna and I going out in the community and picking up bugs and all of those kind of things that I guess most people worry about with an immune suppressed child. And it really, I guess it really helped her her stay stay well during that initial period post post surgery. And we've been really lucky. <laughs> it's been just over a year since her transplant. What does Maya's life look like now? Look, um, it's it's great. She's moving um, forward in leaps and bounds. Doing things, I guess, initially we were told maybe wouldn't be something she could do. So she, you know, progressed to crawling. She's pulling up to stand. We're, you know, so close from her her walking. She's starting to be interested in food, which was something that was just, I guess she was always sickly and not wanting to eat because she would vomit. Um, now she's showing interest in food. And I guess the biggest thing for her is, She's she's talk you know talking she's singing she's playing with Luna like a normal kid she's learning Wiggles songs and she's giggling and laughing at us and we're starting to get her real cheeky personality coming out and you know we're really excited to see see what's what's going to be forward for her because things like you know we're planning for her to go to kinder next year which was something that we didn't even know that if it would be a reality for her pre transplant. It's a beautiful story, and I'm really glad things worked out as well as they have for your family. I've got just a couple more questions for you. The first one, if you were able to say something to the donor family, what would you say? Oh, and look, the biggest thing would be thank you, in particular knowing that, you know, Maya was 20 months when she had her transplant, so her donor, it was a paediatric donor, so somebody in that situation with probably the most traumatic time in, in, in their life has made that decision to help save our daughter's life. It's just, you can't clearly put it into words other than just to say thank you. And we hope that knowing the life that Maya could potentially lead now is because of you. That's really, really nice. The last question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast is always the same. What would you say to someone who was thinking about signing up to be an organ donor or unsure about signing up? Um, look, what I, what I would say is if you, if you could save a life, you would. And if you've, if you've passed and your legacy could live on in someone else um, and really change their life, hopefully hearing our story would make you, you think twice and decide to. Tara, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing Maya's story. No worries. Thank you, Michael. I hope after hearing this story, you might go to donatelife.gov.au and sign up to become an organ donor and also talk to your family about your wishes. If you enjoyed the podcast, then give it a review or a rating, maybe even share it on your social media. I hope it swayed you to sign up to become an organ donor. If you did sign up after hearing this or you've got any questions or comments about the podcast, drop me a line, donatelifepodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Next week, my guest will be Andrew Conway, who is currently waiting on a heart transplant and has died not once but twice. He's got an amazing story to tell. I hope you'll join me and I hope you'll make the decision to donate life.